Hey, this is Matt Stacy, youth pastor at New Life, and this is our podcast. I hope that the preaching and teaching you listen to here encourages you and strengthens you in your walk with God. This podcast is a ministry of New Life, and as such, is completely free to the listener. That being said, if you feel led to give to this ministry, we want to make that available to you. You can text GIVE to 833-793-0451. You can also give online through the Tithely app by searching New Life Tabernacle. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the message. Amen. Tonight we're looking at Revelation chapter 7. We're going to study chapter 7. If you wouldn't mind praying with me, and then we're going to dive right into this. Jesus, we thank you for another opportunity in your house to glean from your word, to study your word. Lord, I ask that you would help me to teach in a way that you can anoint, help me to say everything that you'd have me to say, nothing more, nothing less. Let the seed of your word fall on good ground tonight. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. Before we dive in, you can be seated. Before we dive into chapter 7, Let's take a look at how we got here. It's been a couple of weeks since we've taught the book of Revelation. Chapter 4, we saw John. He's the writer of the book of Revelation. He sees a vision. He's thrust, if you will, into the throne room of heaven. And... In his vision, he sees 24 elders, and they're sitting on 24 thrones, and they're around one great throne where the one God sits. You see the 24 elders, all of them wearing crowns. So you've got 24 crowns upon the elders. Above the throne that's in the central, the center of the throne room is what Revelation calls the four beasts. That word beast we talked about could be translated living things, which is essentially what they are. They're they're four angels, living things, and they're circling the throne, crying at all times, holy, holy, holy. So what an awesome scene that John experiences in chapter 4. And then we look at chapter 5 and... Here, John sees what can only be, he can only describe as a strong angel. And the strong angel steps forward and the strong angel makes a call that, according to scripture, goes out all over the universe. And anyone remember what the call was? He's looking for someone who is worthy. Is anyone worthy to open the book? to open the scroll. So the call goes forth and John understands, I think, innately, but also through years of study himself, that there has to be someone worthy. And when he realizes uh, no one steps forward immediately, according to Scripture, John begins to, he begins to grieve and it really tears him up and he begins to weep. 
And it's unimaginable grief, really, because if no one is worthy to open the book, then no one is worthy to take all that's wrong and make it right again. So essentially what John is feeling in his heart is that everything's been for nothing. And so he's grieving. And we remember that in the middle of his grief, an elder grabs him, says, you're crying too early. You're grieving too quickly. Look up. The lion of the tribe of Judah is stepping forward. He's worthy to open the book. And I love this, and I, and I can't get away from it every time I mention it. John hears about this lion of the tribe of Judah, and of course he knows the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he looks up his head looking for the lion, and what does he see? He sees a lamb, a slain lamb, walking towards the throne. How can, how can the elder confuse a lion with a lamb? It seems almost impossible unless you know that the lion and the lamb are the same person. It's Jesus Christ. He's the slain lamb. And we know that he was, uh, we read that slain and it's freshly slaughtered is that word. Freshly slaughtered. So the scars of Calvary still on him as he steps forward, worthy, the only one in all of the universe that is worthy to open the book. And we talked about what the book was, the scroll. It's a title deed to the universe, to the world that was created. It's the title deed. And Jesus is the only one worthy to open it. It is sealed with seven seals. And uh, each seal is going to bring about a judgment or a retaking of the earth through judgment. So every time a seal is opened, the Lord is taking back the earth, essentially. He's, he's taking back what is rightfully His. And that brings us to chapter 6, where the Lamb begins to open the seven seals that, are, that He's worthy to open. <clears throat> the first four seals, if you remember, this is where we get the terminology. Um, they've been dubbed the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's the first four seals. The first seal is a white horse with a rider. And as Jesus opens that first seal, the lamb opens the first seal, a, John sees a white horse. And we know that's symbolic. It's not a literal white horse, but it's symbolic of what was, what was going to come. We talked about how we believe that that is a false peace that's going to take over the world at that time. Now remember, all of this is in the context of... Because of the 24 elders being in heaven, we believe the church has been raptured out. So the church is in heaven, so what's left on earth is what's going to uh, have to withstand these seven seals or seven judgments. And so the people on the earth are going to experience a false peace, and then the next seal is opened up. What's the next seal? The next seal represent is represented by a red horse, which is unimaginable war and destruction. So we know that there's going to be a false peace that's going to hit the earth. And then right after that, following that, is going to be a war of just catastrophic effects that's going to hit the earth. And then after that, the third seal is a black horse, worldwide famine and poverty. And it only makes sense, right? If you have a, a war that's going to take over the earth, like 
we've never seen before. You think World War One, World War Two. You've got to think that on a scale unimaginable. So obviously, it makes sense. Following that horse comes the black horse, which is representing famine and poverty. And then following that horse, the fourth seal is a pale horse, what the Bible calls a pale horse. And that pale horse has following it death and hell. And literally the imagery is death comes along and it's wiping out people and behind it hell is burying who it kills. And we know that because of the calamity here in these four seals that at least a fourth of the population of the earth at that time is going to die. It's going to be wiped out because of these four seals. That's going to uh, come out to around two billion people. Can you imagine? A fourth of the world's population completely wiped out. And that's just the first four seals. And then we read in chapter 6, the fifth seal being opened. And if you remember the fifth seal, John doesn't see anything, but he hears something. Underneath the throne are the cries of martyred saints. Martyred saints and their cries and their prayers going up to the Lord. Prayer for what? Prayer for vengeance. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to wait? Are you, are you going to withhold vengeance from the earth? Those righteous Christians who have been martyred are going to cry out for vengeance. And we talked about when we studied this that that's one aspect of God that our world likes to ignore. And it's always a dangerous thing to ignore things about God. There's something true about God that the Bible makes clear, and that is He's a God of vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, several times throughout the Old Testament. And these that are martyred, they know who it is that they serve. And so they're crying out on behalf of God, God send vengeance to the earth, avenge us. And the Lord gives them a promise that He's going to, He will avenge them, but it's going to take time. And there's going to be more that's going to join you first, is essentially what Jesus promises them. And then we have the sixth seal, which is opened up. And this is one of the most scary, if you want to put that term on it, seals out of these seals. And it's unimaginable chaos that's going to hit the earth. Literally, the Bible says the stars are going to fall. Now, that's from human perspective, right? It's going to look like stars are following. These are going to be more like meteorites or asteroids coming and hitting the earth. That's how much calamity and chaos are going to take place when this sixth seal is opened up. There's going to be an earthquake that's going to shake the earth so severely that from the perspective of those that are on earth, it's going to look as if even the sky is splitting open and moving. And it's going to look as if mountains have moved out of their place to a different position because of the, uh, mag the, the magnitude of the earthquakes. All of this is going to happen. And we read at the end of chapter 6 that all of the wise and all of the powerful men and women of the day, see, all of this is going on and there's going to be people, and we're going to talk about it tonight actually, those people that are going to be left on the earth that are going to be believers. And this entire time, there's going to be people on the earth that are telling those that remain what's happening. 
They're explaining to them this is the wrath of God, this is the judgment of God being poured out, and nobody's listening, nobody's believing. But after that sixth seal and that chaos that's going to erupt, the Bible says that the powerful men, the wise men and women of the day are going to admit to themselves this is the Lamb. And who can save us? Who can stand? And fear is going to get a hold of them, a fear so strong that it says they're going to run and they're going to call out to the rocks or pray to the rocks that the rocks would fall on them and would end their lives. They would prefer death to life, to living life in this amount of fear. That's the chaos that's going to be on this earth. I don't want to be here when all that happens. I don't want to be left behind. I want to take the first trip out. And so that brings us to chapter 7. Probably John watching all of that take place, and he hears that question, is there anyone who will stand, who is able to stand in that day? Most likely, his answer to that would be no. My answer would have been no. I've just watched a fourth of the world pass away from famine and poverty. I've just watched meteorites and asteroids crash into the earth. I've seen the earth shake so severely that it looks like mountains have moved and the earth has opened up and people are dying and, and chaos is, is wreaking havoc all across the earth. No doubt John's thinking in his mind, nobody is going to be able to stand. And that leads us, in fact, to chapter 7. And it's revealed that God always has a remnant. And that's another law. That's another uh, rule that God has throughout His Word. There's always a remnant of people. There's always somebody that God calls out, that God separates, that God protects, that God puts His hand on, so that He always has a witness. Why? There's never going to be a time on the earth where people can point fingers at God and say, we didn't know. We are without excuse. There will always be a witness of some kind on the earth until Jesus himself comes back and he is that great witness. Amen. So we look at chapter 7 and it's interesting. Chapter 7 is actually a break in the action. It's a break in the chaos that's taking place. It's been described as, some theologians describe it as a parenthesis in the action, an intermission, if you will, in the great end-time drama. Let's look at it. Verse number 1 of chapter 7. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. So John here sees four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. What's interesting about this is people use this passage of Scripture to point fingers at the Bible and say, see, the Bible is compromised. It doesn't get everything right. The earth is not flat. It doesn't actually have four specific corners. Uh, and they like to they like to disparage the Bible, but that's not what the Bible is talking about. This is written from human perspective, from man's perspective. Have you ever had a compass? Was the compass show four spots: north, south, east, and west, four corners. When the wind blows, 
we say that's an east wind, or that's a northern wind, or a southern wind. We have directions for, from which the wind, the wind originates. And actually, sailors back in the day would talk about the four quadrants of the earth, which is exactly what is being talked about here. The four quadrants of the earth where the wind originates, where the wind starts. Just to be clear that the Bible is not mistaken, it was actually the Bible that called the earth a circle or a sphere as far back as Isaiah, Isaiah wrote it, thousands and thousands of years before that idea caught up with mankind. For thousands and thousands of years, it was just accepted that man uh, dwelt on a flat earth, that eventually if you kept traveling in one direction, you would fall off of the earth. But God in his word from the very beginning established the earth is a circle. It's a sphere. So the Bible had that right from the beginning. We don't have to defend the Bible, but we can because the Bible is uh, defendable. And I'm thankful for that. So John sees this, sees four angels standing on the four corners of the earth. And they are apparently holding back four winds of the earth, literally controlling them and holding them back. That's the job that these angels have been given. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So this is the break that I was talking about that chapter 7 gives the chaos and the destruction that is taking place on the earth. What's interesting is that, and I'd like to stop here and talk about it, is that uh, he's the living God, right? And so all of this is happening on the earth. There, there are no uh, illusions left on the gods that people serve. They're crying out to mountains and rocks for rocks and things to fall on them. But who it is, who is it that the angels say they serve? That they have the seal that they're getting ready to place on these 144,000. He's the living God. I think that we can encourage ourselves uh, by that. The angel calls to the four other angels... Um, who it is said God has given them power to hurt the earth and the sea, and he tells them to stop. Stop until when? He says, stop until we have sealed the servants of our God in their forehead. So in the middle of the chaos, in the middle of the tribulation, in the middle of everything happening on the earth at this time, God says, I'm going to gather a people for myself in the middle of all of this. We look at the seal. There's a lot of speculation. In fact, you may have thought to yourself, right then, what's the seal going to be? What's, it, what's going to show up on their forehead? I am, and hopefully we're 15 lessons deep. You've, you've come to the conclusion. You can trust that I'm not going to speculate about things that the Bible is silent on. I don't know what the seal looks like. I don't know what the seal is going to be. I'm not even sure if it's a visible seal. 
if it's going to be something that we can see or if it's a spiritual seal like it says in the book of Ephesians that the church has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. I don't know what kind of seal it is. Here's what I know. I know that God is going to seal for himself, protect these 144,000 believers. Let's look at verses 4 through 8, if we can. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 140 and 4,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And actually, you can read 5 through 8, but for the sake of time, I'm going to jump over them because each one says... um, a version of the same thing, which is 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from the next tribe, 12,000 from the next tribe. It's very important, um, but for the sake of time, just you can read it right now while I'm teaching or just trust that it's there. So what's happening here? John hears that there's going to be sealed 144 Jewish people out of the tribes of Israel, 12,000 from each tribe. So there are those... Um, today who believe that the church has replaced Israel. You might run into these people. They believe that the church is spiritual Israel, that the church has replaced Israel. Um, This is known as replacement theology. They see these 144,000 as being representatives of the church. Now, there's a couple of problems with this, and I wanted to deal with it tonight as we study this I think it's a very powerful part of Scripture, and it matters. Um, The first problem and most obvious problem with believing that these 144,000 are representative of the church and not literal uh, Israelites is that each one of them come from a specific tribe. Now, where do we get the idea of a spiritual Israel? We get it from Galatians. We get it from Romans, where we have been, and we're going to talk about Romans later. We have been literally adopted in. We have been grafted into the vine. Um, We are sons and daughters of God through Abraham. We have an inheritance. We are linked through it through adoption. But that the problem with that is, because we are adopted, we can't point to a specific tribe that we are a part of. You can say, I'm a part of, I'm, I'm a child of Abraham because I've been adopted in, but you can't say, I'm a child of Abraham through the tribe, uh, tribe of Judah. You can't say that I'm a child of Abraham through the tribe of Benjamin. But these 144,000 can trace their lineage back to a specific tribe. So this is not the church. This is literal Jewish people. There's 144,000 of them, and uh, they have been kept or sealed at this time. Not spiritual Israel, this is faithful Israel. The second part is that, uh, the second problem I have with saying that these are, and I think the first is sufficient, but I want to point out the second as well, saying these 144,000 represent the church, it's a, it's a, pretty serious problem, and that is if they represent the church and they're not literal Jewish people, then God is not a promise keeper. This is God keeping his His promise to the people of Israel, to the children of Israel. What do I mean by that? Let's jump down 
to Romans chapter, or jump to rather, Romans chapter 11, verse 11. I think it's important to deal with this, so if you'll hang with me tonight, we're going we're gonna to talk about it and deal with it. We, we need to talk about the plan of God, salvation, the, uh, the mechanics, if you will. What happened that caused us to be able to be grafted in or adopted in, and what does that mean for the nation of Israel? Romans chapter 11, verse number 11. I say then, have they, speaking of Israel, stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles. Why? For to provoke them to jealousy. So Paul says, did they stumble that they should fall? What does he mean by fall? Did they stumble so that they could be completely ruined? Completely cut out of the plan of God? Paul says, God forbid. That was not what God had in mind. Yes, they stumbled. Yes, they've been cut off, but it's not so that they could be cut off forever. We have been grafted in because of that. That's the plan of God. To redeem Israel, provoking, um, to redeem Israel by provoking Israel to jealousy. Sorry for stumbling around with that. Uh, jump down to verse number 17. I'm getting ahead of myself in my brain. I don't want to do that. Romans chapter 11, verse number 17. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So what happened? So Israel gets cut off in Israel's place. The door of salvation gets opened to the Gentiles. That's you and I. We have an opportunity for salvation That means that there was a breaking off so that there could be a grafting in, so that salvation can come to the Gentiles. Let's look at, uh, let's jump down to verses 23 through 26. Romans 11, 23 through 26. And this is important right here. We, we, too often, I think we, we skip right over this portion of scripture in Romans, but it's, it's very important. And they also, if they abide, this is talking about Israel, not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So we could call this portion of Scripture Israel's hope that they will be grafted in again, that God will turn back to them. Uh, Paul is saying here, he said, if it's possible for us who are not a natural part of the, of the tree to be grafted in, how much more possible is it for God to turn back to those who he originally made a covenant with and graft them back then, back into the tree? He says, after all, it's their tree. It's their promise. They've been promised things by God, and God is going to keep his promise 
to the people of Israel. Amen. God is a promise keeper. We can trust that. It's interesting that we today, we, we preach and teach and love to talk about the promise keeper and a God that keeps promises, but we forget that there's an entire nation that God has made a promise to that he's duty bound to keep. Amen. And I believe that he's going to do it. And in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, it shows us how he's going uh, to do that. So, once the church is raptured away, and I believe by Revelation 7, the church is already raptured away. I don't know how the salvation process is going to work at that point. I know that in every dispensation, God has a plan of salvation. He has a way for us to be saved. He makes a way for us to be saved. Once the church is gone, I don't know, I don't have the answers for you of how people are going to be saved after the church is raptured. Here's what I know. I know that at least 144,000 of the tribe of Israel are going to be saved because the word of God says they are. And I know that there is going to be an untold multitude that we're going to see in just a minute that are the tribulation saints that are also going to be saved through this trial or through this tribulation. What we see here is God keeping his promises. Let's look at chapter uh, chapter 7 again in verse number 9 of the book of Revelation. Now this is a different scene, right? So we, we we're... In chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, he's showing the angel uh, tells John, rather, John hears them say how many he has sealed because he sealed them on the earth. But this scene is getting ready to show us heaven. And it's interesting what we find. And this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. So we know, again, another sign that this is not talking about the same people. It's not talking about the 144,000 because these people are from every nation, every kindred, and every tongue. And they stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. What a scene that John's getting ready to see. Verse 10, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Verse 11, And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. Verse 12, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. So a chorus of praise is just breaking forth in heaven at this moment that John is, John is getting to be an eyewitness of something that's taking place in heaven. And he's seeing these multitudes, these thousands upon thousands, all crying out in worship and praise unto God. Let's look at verse 13. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I love this. You know, have you ever come across somebody who asks you a question that they know the answer to and they know that you don't know? There are these people. 
You know, sometimes it's, it's old. I don't want to point any fingers, but it's, you know, sometimes it's older folk. Most of the time it's older people. They've got the answer. They know you don't have the answer. And there's a joy that comes over their face when they ask the question. This is what John is caught up in right now. John is literally being asked a question he has no idea the answer to. And the elder knows that he doesn't know. The elder stops him and, and there's just magnificent scene taking place in heaven, worship and praise and adoration. And the elder just stops right in the middle of all of it and grabs John and says, John, do you know who these people are? Do you have any idea who these thousands upon thousands upon thousands are? And John looks at him, verse 14, and I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. <laughs> you know. Tell me the answer. You know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, the answer is, I don't know, but you're going to tell me, aren't you? <laughs> it's kind of one of those things. You know that they want to tell you. And so John says, you know what? You know. I don't know, but you know. And so the elder tells him, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. John doesn't identify with these people. He, he doesn't know who they are. And so the elder points it out. Who are they? There is a legion of people. Even after the, the people of God have been raptured away, God has a remnant, right? And I believe that he's going to use the 144,000 to reach some of these people because their eyes are going to be open and they're going to become evangelists for the Lord. And, and, and they're going to witness throughout the earth. And I just believe that by their witnessing, part of the legion that's there in heaven is going to be because of them. But here they are. Who are they? They're the people that God claimed for himself, even in the, in the worst time the world has ever seen, in the, in the most chaos that the world has ever seen, even as judgment is at the door. Judgment at the door, judgment being poured out on the earth. Still we serve a God that has mercy, that is reaching out his hand for people, that is looking for people to be saved, even at the last moments. Folks, at this point in the Bible, we are so close to Jesus coming back on his white horse with thousands of saints. We are so close at this point, so close. And yet even then, God is reaching out with mercy, trying to find people who will be saved during that time. That's the God that we serve. I'm so thankful that we serve a God like that, that even in the final moments is looking for somebody to be saved. Let's look at verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. So what is their reward? Their reward is they get a place of prominence in heaven, a place right before the throne. And get this, verse number 16, I love this. Out of context, uh, it could encourage us and everything, but I believe it means so much more in context. We look at verse 16, and remember who it's talking about. Those that have, that have lived for God through the great tribulation. Here's what the living for God through the great tribulation is going to be like, Brother Jeff. If you don't take the mark of the beast, if you don't submit to the mark of the beast, you're not going to be able to buy or sell or shop. 
That means that your family may starve to death. That means that if it's known that you're living for God, that you're worshiping Jesus during that day, you're probably going to be killed. That the only way to survive is to stay under the radar in that day. That's what's happening. That's the people that's being addressed here. In verse number 16, look at this. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Who are we talking to? It's not just you and I. It's people that because of their service to God, because their faithfulness to God, were denied food. They're not going to hunger anymore. That's a reward that they get. When they get to heaven, it's people that because of their service to God, they go around thirsty, having nothing to drink. But Jesus says, whenever I take you unto myself, you're not going to thirst anymore. It means it's special significance to them. Like we think of that and, and, and we love to drink. You know, I like drinking root beer. I like different kinds of root beer. We can't hardly understand. I love food. You know, I go a day intermittent fasting and I start thinking to myself, well, I'm starving to death. But then the voice of Martha Stacy gets inside of me and I know that there are people somewhere in the world that are actually starving to death. So this verse is, it, I, you know what, I'll be honest with you, it's hard to connect with. They shall not hunger anymore because, you know, hunger is not often a bad thing for me. That tells me I'm getting ready to do one of my favorite activities, eat. But, you know, for these people, they weren't able to. They didn't have that option. And so it has special significance to them. And it says that the light shall not shine on them, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. What does that mean? Can you imagine living in a world, and it's hard to imagine in the middle of summer in Oklahoma, living in a world where you don't have proper shelter. Air conditions may may not be, they may not have access to it. So because they're living in famine and poverty and they're ostracized because they're living for God. And yet Jesus says, when you get to heaven, you don't have to worry about any of that anymore. That's part of the reward of those that are faithful. Verse 17, for the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. We serve a faithful God. And it's important to remember that. It's easy as we're living this life, right? It's easy to forget the faithfulness of God. When we start looking around and reading the news and we see the chaos that is happening in our own world right now, in our own lives, in our own situations, it's hard to remember that there's coming a day, but we've got to remember and we've got to hold on to it because it's the hope of the righteous. Why is it that the church struggles through life so often? It's because we forget what our hope is and this is not it. This is not the hope of the righteous. The hope of the righteous is an eternity with the Lord, a place where He's going to wipe away the tears and He's going to feed those that were hungry before and He's going to lead them to water that will never run dry. That's the hope of the righteous. 
Amen. And we can't get distracted and we must not forget about the faithfulness of God. That's why every day we should go through life being grateful and thankful for God. Because even when it looks like we're going without and even when it looks like we're running into trials, glory to God for the trials because there's coming a day when I'm going to see a place that's going to make all of those trials go away. I'm going to forget about all of those difficulties and all of the hard times and all of the stressful situations and all of the anxiety because I'll be in the presence of Almighty God in the place that He created specifically for us and for Him for all eternity. That's something to praise the Lord about. And I've got news for you. You know what else is awesome about this multitude that, uh, that John sees in heaven? I love it, Brother Chad. Every one of them martyrs death. Either they starved to death or they were killed or for some, they had to get there some way like that because there's people still on the earth, right? And the rapture already took place. And so these are a multitude of people who have died along the way serving God. You know what's so awesome about this scene in heaven, Brother Jeff? No one's complaining. Find the soul in the multitude of people who's pointing at Jesus and saying, I can't believe you made me go through that. I can't believe you allowed me to go hungry on the earth. I can't believe you allowed them to kill me or kill my family. You can't find one soul there that's saying any of that. John's looking around and what does he see? Every one of them are worshiping and praising God. Why? Because of the awesomeness of the situation. If you can just keep your mind focused on the fact that there's coming a day when we're going to see Jesus face to face and we're going to have that reward of heaven, I'm telling you, it'll make getting through life so much easier. If we could all stand, I'm coming to a close. Amen. I'm so thankful for chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. A much needed break. God knew we needed a break right there in the middle of Revelation. Because we've got chaos. We've got war breaking out. We've got poverty and famine. We've got asteroids and meteorites striking the earth. We've got earthquakes taking place. And all of a sudden, in the middle of all of that, and the fear that can get a hold of us, because we're sitting here thinking, oh God, I hope I don't, I hope I don't miss the rapture as we're reading all of this. And then all of a sudden, right after that, there's a break and God just reminds us, I'm a promise keeper. I'm a promise keeper. And if he keeps his promise to Israel, you know what that means for you and I? We're going to see Him. We're going to see the rapture. Amen. It doesn't matter if Jesus comes back tonight, tomorrow, or 50 years from now. Coming back in the sense of the rapture, calling the church out. I want to be ready. I want to be faithful. And that's my job. That's your job. We get so focused on the stuff that is going on around us. You know what we ought to do? We ought to cultivate something in our life. Cultivate something beautiful. A godly family. Plant a garden. Enjoy life. Reach people. Show people that you're not dealing with the same stuff that the world is dealing with because you know Jesus. And we've got a hope that they don't. And then get ready. What did Peter say? Get ready to give answer for the hope that's inside of you. That's how we reach people. We reach people by being different. 
by having a hope that they don't have, by having a difference in our lives, by having a relationship with the Lord that they want. That's what we're after, right? We're after a relationship with the Lord. I hope tonight as we read chapter 7 that we could just get reminded that we serve a promise-keeping, faithful God. And if we'll just do our part, God's going to do His part. And God's going to get us to that prize. He's going to get us to that place where it's just He and us for eternity. Amen. I wonder if you could find a place to pray. If you want to pray at your at your pew or you want to come to the front and pray, wherever it is, if we could just take 10 or so minutes and let's just find a place to thank God for His faithfulness and the fact that He's a promise keeper.